My name is John Ziegler, and welcome to the Free Speech Broadcasting Network, where this is where each and every Sunday night we talk about the news of the week and the events of my often bizarre life, and where we provide you with a three-hour oasis of honesty and rationality in the desert of insanity and deceit, which is the American media, cultural, and political landscape. At least we do our best to try to do that when we're not experiencing technical difficulties, which we have in the first hour of each of the last two shows with catastrophic consequences. I'm Much more optimistic about this particular edition of the program. If you weren't with us last week and you missed the uh, the disaster that was the first about 40 minutes of last week's show, there is some good news because the content that actually was being broadcast, you just probably didn't hear it properly, is available on our podcasts. It's perfectly fine, and it's actually well worth listening to. A really good interview with Democratic Congressman John Yarmouth from Louisville, in the first half hour of that show, you can find it at our website, www.freespeechbroadcasting.com, in our podcasting section, either via iTunes or SoundCloud. We hope to get uh, Congressman Yarmouth back on the program again sometime soon because there were important portions of that interview which we were not able to get to, including a dissertation and an evaluation and analysis of the news media coverage of this past election which uh, I know Congressman Yarmouth has some strong opinions on having been a uh, newspaper owner before he became a congressman. And obviously, news media coverage is one of the areas of great interest on this program at all times, since I've devoted most of my life and career to trying to educate people as to just how utterly broken, incompetent, and biased the uh, international and national and local news media is, and how really, especially in this modern age, How everything's just flat broken. It's just broken, and we see it every single day, numerous times a day. And I think that there's a large part of those. That's a big part of the reason why Donald Trump was able to manipulate the system to become president of the United States. Usually on this program, we at least mention what happened in college football over the weekend. And interestingly, while my prediction for the presidential election was flat wrong— having said numerous times, almost every single, in fact, every single week, for over a year that Donald Trump would not be president, that he had a very, very low likelihood of beating Hillary Clinton. My prediction for the college football playoff very early on turned out to be uh, pretty much exactly dead on. I had said that Alabama would get in from the beginning of the season. I said that the winner of the Ohio State-Michigan game would get into the four-team playoff, and they did with some controversy since Ohio State did not win a conference championship. I predicted that Clemson would get in because they would win the ACC, and I predicted that the Pac-10 champion would get in. That turns out to be Washington, so it'll be Alabama against Washington. They will crush Washington by every – in fact, it's so obvious they're going to crush Washington. Maybe they won't, but I'm pretty confident they will in the one semifinal and Clemson versus Ohio State in what should be a really good other semifinal to see who – has to take on Alabama in the finals. The team that got left out in the cold is a team that um, was rather put me in a rather strange situation because that was Penn State. For those of you who have listened to this program before, you were probably aware 
uh, that for the last four-plus years I have, in a bizarre series of circumstances, gotten embroiled in the so-called very, very misunderstood Penn State scandal, if you will. I have a website, www.framingpaterno, as in Joe Paterno, former head football coach at Penn State, framingpaterno.com, where you can find out everything, you, I mean, way more than you ever wanted to know about that entire story. And what an amazing Cinderella story that this Penn State has come back in just an incredibly short period of time from the disaster that was the Sandusky, quote-unquote, scandal at Penn State, where the program was almost completely destroyed. And they got the NCAA sanctions reversed, and now just four years, just over four years after that, uh, they came within a whisker of making the playoff. They won the Big Ten championship. They're going to the Rose Bowl, which is the good part for me. You know, things very rarely ever work out for me personally, and I couldn't care less about Penn State football as a fan. Uh, I used to be a fan way back in the day when I grew up in Pennsylvania. I was they were probably my third or fourth favorite team, but this whole last four years has really turned me off to the entire administration and the school at Penn State. There's a lot of good people there, and the kids out there, obviously, on the team had nothing to do with what transpired, but they butchered that whole situation from A to Z worse than anybody could possibly imagine. And so it's not a matter of the football part of this that I'm interested in. The fact is that I live in Southern California. I often go to the Rose Bowl parade, occasionally go to the Rose Bowl, and so Penn State coming out here to play USC in the Rose Bowl is exciting for me uh, because I'll probably end up going to a couple of events and maybe even – Some other things might be happening around that that revolve around my role in this story. I don't know what those are going to be. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm really pretty much brainstorming at this point. Suffice to say, if on January 2nd, the morning of the Rose Parade, because New Year's Day is on a Sunday this year, so the Rose Parade will not be on New Year's Day. It'll be on January 2nd. So if down the road... If you're watching the Rose Parade or maybe you're hearing a news report and you hear hear of some nut job running down the street in Pasadena with some sort of inflammatory sign or something like that related to Joe Paterno, you can pretty much pretty much bank it. That'll be me. Uh, although I, I doubt that that'll probably I doubt that'll end up happening because my wife is a huge fan of the Rose Parade and I don't think you know, she has a low tolerance for me getting arrested these days since it did happen already once this this year, and uh, even though this technically will be 2017, you know, twice in one year and an event that she really likes, probably not a real good idea. But pretty much everything else is on the table. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'll come up with something with uh, Penn State coming out here to Southern California to play in the Rose Bowl. By the way, I'm not the only person that could possibly correlate the presidential election to college football. Maybe not the only person, but one of the few. And something occurred to me as the, the final standings were released and the bowls were announced today for college football. There is an extraordinary correlation between the teams that did the best in college football this year, especially in the upper Midwest, and the states that they come from having voted for Donald Trump. And it's extraordinary. Seven of the top eight college football teams come from states that Trump won. And by the way, several of those are states that Republicans don't normally win. 19 of the top 25 college football teams are from states that Trump won. The top five teams in the Big Ten Conference, Pennsylvania, Ohio State, Michigan, 
uh, Wisconsin and Iowa, obviously Penn State for Pennsylvania, those five schools all come from states that Trump won, states that recently have not necessarily been Republican states. In fact, Obama won all of those at some point. And Trump won them as well. That's why he's president-elect. I, I got to believe there's some correlation there. I'm not sure what it is. I, I, I once referred to this election as the the balls versus the P-word election. Obviously got a man versus a woman. And so there were a lot of levels that that, that analogy worked, that metaphor worked, whatever you want to call it. Maybe it really wasn't balls versus P-word. Maybe it's you know just a situation where you have certain areas of the country that are just tougher than others. And the places that are tough voted for Trump. The places that aren't so tough voted for Hillary. And barely, just barely, there's still more places that are tough in this country than are wimpy. There are a lot of different ways you can interpret that data, but I do think there's some sort of correlation there between the states that voted for Trump and those states having produced the best college football for this particular year. By the way, one other, when we come back, I guarantee that the um, connection that I'm going to make between college football and what really happened in the election is something you're not going to hear anywhere else. So stay tuned for that. Plus, we'll get to a ton of news in the next two hours and 45 minutes right here on the Free Speech Broadcasting Network. Welcome back. My name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Free Speech Broadcasting Network. Our website is www.freespeechbroadcasting.com. So as promised, one other note connecting college football to the election tangentially in a way that I guarantee no one else would, for better or for worse. You may recall, about three of you probably recall, at the very beginning of college football season this year when USC thrashed by Alabama the first weekend of the season back on Labor Day. I told the story of how my college girlfriend, I went to Georgetown University, my college girlfriend has a thing with her father, very close to her father, who's a great guy, where they go on a trip every single year to watch USC football. They grew up as USC football fans. They go to a lot of home games, but usually they go on one road trip per year. And that she had decided to move up this year's trip and go to that Alabama game in Texas because her father had dementia. And it was getting bad fast. And so she didn't know how much time she had uh, to be able to make this trip so that he really you know, knew what was going on. Now, the good part of that was because they got crushed, he has no memory of it at all. So I guess that's the good part. But that's not what why I'm telling the story again. It's the only real memorable part of the story might have been the fact that I got choked up talking about it because, you know, it's such a sad thing when someone goes that way, especially a really great guy like this person is. And I really feel for for my friend, my college girlfriend, having to go through this because I know how close she is to her dad. So with USC 
going to the Rose Bowl, I touched base with her last night, and we were messaging back and forth. And she happened to mention something I found, and she found fascinating about the issue of dementia or Alzheimer's and this election. So her dad's a huge sports fan, obviously. And apparently at this point, at this stage of his dementia, his Alzheimer's, he still believes that Steve Garvey is playing first base for the Los Angeles Dodgers, who I don't think has played for the Dodgers at least since the early 80s. And, you know, he's a big baseball fan, but you know that, that's the world that he's living in, right? He can't remember anything. It's a day-to-day deal. I think she mentioned that she he asked her on Thanksgiving whether Thanksgiving is always on a Thursday. So, I mean, this is a very intelligent guy. You know, this is the this is where he is with regard to his mental abilities eroding. And yet she mentioned that when it came to the election, he still knew that he had to vote against Hillary. Isn't that amazing? He has almost no idea what's going on in the world currently. Has no real memories of recent years. Yet he was adamant that he was going to vote and he needed to vote because he needed to vote against Hillary. Now that is a hatred that goes deep, my friends. (laughs) That is deeply embedded hatred. Not that I don't respect it. I do. But that to me, and I, I think to my friend as well, illustrates really the core, in a weird way, the, of how Trump pulled this off. Because for a huge portion of the population, I don't know what the number is, but it's over a third, pushing close to 40% of the population has such a distrust, such a disdain, such a hatred, really, of Hillary Clinton that it allowed Donald Trump to almost literally get away with murder, to do whatever he wanted. It didn't matter. It did not matter because the alternative was Hillary. And I can't tell you how many times I heard (laughs) over this year, but Hillary... But wait a minute, aren't you worried about Trump about this? No, but Hillary, but Hillary, but Hillary. It was endless. Now, a lot of what that was based in was not factual, as proven by the entire fake news phenomenon on Facebook. But we're in a post-truth world right now. Truth really doesn't make much difference. It doesn't make any difference to the news media. And now that we're living in a technological era where anybody can just concoct whatever they want, throw it on Facebook, and if it pleases enough people, makes enough people feel good about themselves, and it gets lucky, gets goes viral, guess what? That's as legitimate as a story from the New York Times. That's the crazy world we're living in. But I thought that was fascinating to show just how deeply rooted that hatred of Hillary Clinton really was. Now, with regard to how and why and what actually happened in that election... Donald Trump is up to already his revisionist history tricks, which I need to talk about when we come back on the Free Speech Broadcasting Network.
My name is John Ziegler. This is the Free Speech Broadcasting Network, where we do things a bit differently than almost every other radio talk show host in the era of Donald Trump. See, to me, I evaluate what's going on in the world and the news based upon what I perceive to be right and what I perceive to be the truth. And then I articulate that. Sometimes I'm wrong. Sometimes I'm right. But the letter next to somebody's name, in the case of Donald Trump, it happens to be an R, although I think that's rather dubious for a lot of reasons, which I've articulated many times over the last 18 months, is irrelevant to me. I evaluate people and events based upon the facts and logic as I see them. And that's the way I have treated Donald Trump since day one, and that's the way I will continue to treat Donald Trump for as long as this show exists, whether this is the last edition of the program or if we continue on for years to come. I have no idea which is more likely at this point, but until we finish with this, I can assure you that will be the core principle that I'm going to treat Donald Trump exactly like I would treat Barack Obama. And boy, there are a lot of similarities, especially this week. And one of the things that I I want to talk about with regard to Donald Trump this week that really bothered me, and I wrote a column about this, which you can find at our website, freespeechbroadcasting.com, deals with the issue of revising history. Now, the column I wrote for Mediate, one of several I, I wrote this week, deals with how Trump and the head of CNN, Jeff Zucker, both went way out of their way this week to revise history, which is something it really gets under my skin whenever it happens. I'm one of these people that thinks that history is important and that history ought to be based in truth. Now, I'm not naive, at least not that naive. I get that the victors write history. But we're not even technically a month out from this election yet. And Donald Trump is already doing his best on a regular basis to make stuff up and flat-out lie about what transpired in the election and how and why and by how much he really won. Now, I know there are some of you probably saying, well, John, this is old news in this 15-minute news cycle in which we now live in. It's basically about a 15, maybe it might be a 45-minute news cycle in this day and age. What happened almost a month ago is old news. Move on. I mean, come on. What difference at this point does it make? I think it makes a lot of difference. First of all, the truth is the truth. Past is prologue. What happened in the past is important to figuring out what's going to happen in the future. And it also makes a big difference for the context of the Trump presidency. Because Trump would like you to believe he won in a landslide, that he won easily. He has said this numerous times on various venues, 60 Minutes, Twitter. He won in a landslide. He said in a... In, in his victory tour, <laughs> his thank you tour. Only guy who goes on a thank you tour by having people thank him, praise him, cheer him, 
applaud him. But it's the Trump thank you tour. It should be, I guess, called the thank him tour. Or, you know, it's obvious that this guy has a pathological need for approval. That's why he tweets. When he tweets, he sees he gets uh, 10,000 retweets and 20,000 likes. That makes him feel good. When he goes out to Ohio, by the way, I'm beginning to think he has a real good chance of winning Ohio, which is where he started his victory slash thank you tour. The election's over, but he's out there, and you know he is obviously basking in the glow of the applause of the audience. But it's what he said that bothered me. I won by a landslide. I won easily. No, 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 you didn't. And I'm not just saying this because I was wrong in my prediction. I was wrong in my prediction, although not by much at all. And the way that I was wrong makes perfect sense based upon the way that I had framed the entire election. We talked numerous times, almost on a weekly basis, about Pennsylvania, how incredibly important Pennsylvania was. And I also said that if Michigan falls, look out, the whole thing might collapse. But I was wrong. Absolutely, I was wrong. I never thought that he could get to the 270 magic number of electoral college votes. But it was not a landslide. He won this election by winning three states. Nobody gave him a shot to win. Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. If he loses those three states, as all the polling indicated that he would, and by the way, not by a little bit. I mean, when he won Wisconsin, it was one of the greatest shocks that I've ever seen, maybe in my lifetime, with regard to a presidential outcome. Because the polling, I I went back a few days ago and looked at it. It is, it's still jaw-dropping. Something was very much amiss with regard to the polling. I don't believe in the hacking theory. I don't think these recounts are going to change anything. But I can at least understand why someone scratched in their head and go, really? Because the polling was way off. Trump never got anywhere near the numbers he needed. And the reality is her people just didn't show up. He did slightly better than expected, and her people didn't show up. But the bottom line is, even then, it was not by much. Hillary's going to win the popular vote by over 2 million votes. That is a huge number. 2 million votes is huge. I realize the popular vote is not how we determine presidential elections, nor should it be. But it's a huge margin. It's a significant margin. It's a margin that clearly gets under Donald Trump's skin, and it should, because it shows that more people who voted clearly wanted Hillary Clinton to be president than wanted Donald Trump. They just weren't living in the right places for her. And she did a really lousy job in her campaign. But if you had taken a tiny, minuscule portion of that 2 million total by which she's going to win the popular vote, and you had spread it out over Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, less than 100,000 if you spread it out properly in those three states, she's president. That is an incredibly close election. There's no landslide. (laughs) Not even close. But Trump's ego is so fragile, he needs to lie to you. He needs to claim that there are millions of illegal votes, which is why he lost the popular vote. It's a lie. It's not just a lie. It's It's just flat out ridiculous. There's no evidence for it. And now that he's president-elect, his lies ought to have more impact. But they don't. They're they're coming at the same clip they've always come because that's who he is. 
That's who Donald Trump is. He's a narcissistic, insecure liar. And it's it's incredibly frustrating because I need him to succeed. I need him to succeed for this country, and I need him to succeed for what's left of the Republican Party because if he fails, we're all going down. So there's a big difference between evaluating someone for who what they are and rooting for them to lose. And this is not about me having sour grapes or looking for down the road some I told you so. There's not going to be an I told you so for Donald Trump for quite a while, in my view. I think in the short run, he's going to be perceived by a good percentage of the population as being a success. It might not be years. It might not be. It could be decades before we really see the true costs of what we sold out to get in Donald Trump. Part of me hopes it's that long, but if it is that long, that the costs are going to probably be enormous. But I'm not going to be around in any significant way to say I told you so as if anyone would care or remember anyway. That's And that's not what motivates me. What motivates me is telling you what I think is true based upon the facts of the moment. And the facts of the moment are that we have a guy who is not psychologically qualified or prepared, or well-suited to be president. And him lying about what happened in the election is just one of many, many examples. Now, by the way, I mentioned that Jeff Zucker is also revising history, head of CNN. He got barraged at a conference this week by GOP operatives, almost literally screaming BS at him because... He was still trying to claim that during the primary season that while they may have aired a few Trump rallies live, that maybe, just maybe, they shouldn't have. Maybe that wasn't the best idea. It was a terrible idea. The only reason they did it was because it was good for ratings. It was easy for content during a slow news period. That's all that drives cable news now. But maybe maybe if they hadn't done that, then their coverage would have been pretty much perfect. Well, that's Boulder Dash. The reality is that they allowed Donald Trump to come out of nowhere, get credibility, get traction, suck all the oxygen out of the room, eliminate any opportunity for any of the other major GOP candidates to be able to exert themselves and keep Trump from be- being the leader heading into the debates and the, the first caucus in Iowa and the first primary in New Hampshire. And by that point, it was already too late. I mean, I'm of the opinion that once Trump won New Hampshire, this was basically over. And once he won South Carolina, it was absolutely over. There was no stopping the Trump train at that point. For some reason, people didn't understand that. And CNN didn't care. I think CNN felt like, well, this is great. It's good for ratings. It's it's easy for us. And, um, you know, he's never going to be the nominee. And by the way, if he somehow is the nominee, that's awesome, too, because we get a great general election and Hillary will be president and everything will be fine. It'll be no harm, no foul. That's what CNN was thinking. Well, they got caught with their hand in the cookie jar like everybody else did. They miscalculated just like I did. They were wrong. The country may, hopefully won't, but may suffer, might suffer greatly because of this. But it was all about ratings. And now Zucker's trying to claim that it didn't really happen. 
Then, oh, we invited all the other candidates on, too. They just didn't accept our invitations. Bullcrap. It's not how it works. Read my column for the details for why that that's a ridiculous and totally absurd explanation by CNN and really just more revisionist history. When we come back, speaking of learning about what actually did happen during the primary, some startling information about who helped Donald Trump at a critical period on the Free Speech Broadcasting Network. Welcome back. My name is John Ziegler. This is the Free Speech Broadcasting Network. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. And it's amazing the things you learn after an election. Unfortunately, 15 minutes after an event is over in this short attention span universe in which we now live, people don't seem to care anymore. They move on and it impacts very few people. I'm one of those stubborn people that likes to find out, okay, we just spent almost two years on this. Can we actually analyze what happened? And, oh, my gosh, when we find a new piece of information that changes the way we view what we think happened, that we make that adjustment? I I know that's a weird concept, I guess. I'm highly unusual in that way, I guess. But that's that's the way I am. And we've learned so many things already in the, the month since Donald Trump defeated Hillary Clinton that are fascinating, one of which I don't think I've ever gotten a chance to mention on the air, deals with the fact that we now learned that Breitbart.com was obviously part of the Trump campaign because, heck, their their CEO, Steve Bannon, ended up becoming the CEO of the Trump campaign itself, and then it's now Trump's special advisor now that he is president-elect. That's not new information, but what we didn't know until after the election was that Breitbart.com, back when they were still pretending to be objective, overtly and proactively participated in sabotaging the campaigns of Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz. Now, it's one thing to be pro-Trump. It's another thing to be an alleged news organization that's actively sabotaging conservative candidacies because they're a threat to Trump. And by the way, conspiring with liberals to do that. Well, we learned something else this week about where Donald Trump got help. He wasn't just getting help from Breitbart.com and the Drudge Report. Everyone knew that was happening and Fox News Channel through Roger Ailes. We knew that, although we've learned a lot from Megyn Kelly's book that she didn't tell us when it would have mattered because, heck, then she wouldn't have had anything to put in her book. It's all about, it's all about you know, what's good for the for the individual, not heck about what's your good for your audience or good for the country or good for the process. No, 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 no. When you're a star, it's all about making money and got to save something for that book. Good job, Megyn Kelly. But this week we learned that after Donald Trump finished a disappointing second in the Iowa caucus, and you may recall that I said at the time that that may be the best thing that ever happened to him. Because if if he had won Iowa, I think there would have been alarm bells everywhere. Everywhere people would have been going bananas. Oh, my God, this is really happening. We've got to stop this. 
Everybody that can't win, get the hell out, and we've got to destroy Trump now. I think that would have been the message. But because he finished second, barely ahead of a surging Marco Rubio who finished third, I think there was a complacency. That was my theory at the time. And that this complacency was actually going to work to his advantage in New Hampshire because New Hampshire never goes for the Iowa winner. They usually like somebody who finishes second or third in Iowa. And that's exactly what ended up happening. Trump won New Hampshire, and then he won South Carolina, and it was over. But we learned this week something new. That coming out of Iowa, Trump was flying blind. Because that's just the way Trump does it. Trump didn't have any real polling. They had no real data. They were just flying by gut. He's making it up as he goes or not. He was basically like Lindbergh flying the spirit of St. Louis across the Atlantic. He had a little hole he was looking out of, could barely see the ocean, and that was it. They didn't know where they were going. And there was internal data, internal polling, that the cruise people, the cruise people, had which showed that Trump's attacks on other Republicans were starting to harm him. In New Hampshire. And so what did the cruise people do? Cruise people could have just said nothing and watched Trump wither and maybe not win New Hampshire. But no, 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 no. See, the cruise people didn't want to do that because if that happened before Chris Christie had destroyed Marco Rubio in that debate, then maybe Rubio wins New Hampshire And Ted Cruz is blocked by Marco Rubio. So they needed Trump to right the ship in New Hampshire. At least they thought, because they were stupid. They underestimated him. So what did they do? We now learn this week that the Cruz people informed the Trump people of their internal polling indicating that Trump was on the wrong path and he needed to correct it. Oops. Can you imagine that, folks? The Cruz people were that stupid. They thought, even after Iowa, that Trump was a paper tiger. That long-term, we don't really need to worry about him. We're not going to attack him because we want his voters after he finally implodes and people finally get serious in all this. Oops. Didn't work out real well. In fact, it worked out horrendously. Trump wins New Hampshire. Trump crushes everybody in South Carolina, and then it's off to the races. And everyone's way too late to consolidate around one other candidate. The only person, in my opinion, who could have beaten him at that point was Marco Rubio. It was too late. And the rest is history. Now, some people out there, I'm sure a lot of people are saying, well, John, what does it matter? We, we won. This was good. Even if it, you know, didn't work out the way we thought or maybe we hoped, we beat Hillary. We beat the beast. Trump's president. This is fantastic, right? Well, maybe. There's some things that are good. Some of these appointments are pretty good. But there are a few other things that are really troubling. And by the way, one of the 
things, and I would say that the biggest overall thing that's really troubling is that we're already seeing what's left of conservatism die under a Republican banner. See, it's one thing for conservatism to not flourish because Democrats are in charge, but when it dies with a Republican in charge and with a Republican Congress and a Republican Senate, that means there's no hope for the future because there's no going back. And this week we saw all sorts of signs that Donald Trump, as I've been saying for a long time, is no conservative. I'm very capable of changing to anything I want to change to. And needs to be watched, which we'll continue to do in hour number two, right here on the Free Speech Broadcasting Network. 